our scripture is Romans 7, 13 through 25. You can find that in your bulletin. And uh, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with, with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. When I was a young kid growing up, I used to love to play sports in the neighborhood. We played all sorts of sports uh, with the, the kids around the neighborhood, football, soccer, and baseball, and basketball. And I like to think of myself as I look back on those times that, you know, I was pretty good at sports. I wasn't, I wasn't a star, but I wasn't a klutz. And of course, that assessment of my athletic abilities came to an abrupt end when I tried to take up the game of golf. Now, golf is just a crazy game. Uh, you think about all these other sports that you play where the ball is moving uh, and people are coming at you. Golf is weird because the ball is not moving. It's stationary. And no one's threatening you or coming at you. Yet, for me, I found it to be the hardest game. You know, so I did what all newcomers to golf do. I worked hard at it. I mean, I, I hit thousands of balls. I remember our kids were young, and so I, we'd put the kids down for bed, and uh, we lived around, the, around the, the neighborhood. There was a uh, driving range, and I would go there at night, and I would hit thousands and thousands of balls. And I would seek the advice and coaching and teaching of professionals. I would watch videos uh, on, on uh, the internet, and I would watch the golf channel. I would film myself. I would do all sorts of things to learn how to play golf. And I actually got to the point where in the game of golf, in my mind, I knew exactly what I needed to do. I knew how to, to hold the club. I knew all the mechanics of the swing. I knew everything that I needed to do. And you know, with golf, it rarely comes together. But I do remember one time it came together for me. Uh, it, was, it was a summer day. It was, actually happened to me on my birthday. And I took the day off of work to play golf at one of my favorite courses in town. 
And I was walking on the back nine, and I came up on my favorite par three, and the wind was light, and so it really wasn't a factor. And I knew on this hole where the, where the pin was positioned that if I hit a little draw and it landed to the right of the pin, that the, that the green itself would funnel, funnel the ball right down to the hole. And so I pulled out my trusty eight iron, and I gave it a swing, the perfect swing, and it landed in the perfect spot. And lo and behold, it made its way into the cup. Could not believe it. I'd only been playing golf for a few years, and I hit the perfect shot. I had a hole in one, and you know what? I've never had a hole in one ever since then, right? Never has happened. Actually, the reality for me is now on the golf course, I go on the golf course with all of this information in my head. I know what to do. I know everything I need to do. I have this strong desire to do it. And yet when I come up and try to hit the ball, something different happens. I can't execute the shot. When we come to this passage in Romans chapter 7, I think this is a little bit of what Paul is talking about, this struggle that we have. This idea that we know in our minds what we need to do. We even have this desire in our heart to do it, and yet when it comes down to it, at times we fail. At times we sin. At times we fail to execute the shot. And the stark reality is, is that the Christian life is a real struggle with sin. And it's only conquered by Jesus. Paul in this passage is describing this real battle that all of us face with indwelling sin. So as we jump into the passage, as we unpack it, we're going to encounter in the first couple of verses what seems like a contradiction. So we're going to have to deal with this apparent contradiction. And then as we look at this conflict that we have with sin, this battle that we have with sin, we're going to gain a clarity about ourselves. And then as we move to the end of the passage, we're going to see the only comfort that we have as we battle sin. And so magically, two Sundays in a row, I've got three C's for you now, a contradiction, a clarity, and confusion. And there's no guarantee that next Sunday I will have alliteration for you, but this Sunday you get it. Before we jump into those three C's, I first want to look at verse 13, which is a transitional verse. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This is a transitional statement between the first 12 verses of Romans and the passage that is before us today. Paul is referring by that question, that which is good to me, he's, he's referring to what we talked about last week. And what we talked about last week was the law. And we found out as we studied the law that apart from Jesus, we are condemned by the law, sentenced to death, and we are under its power, its power to entice and provoke us to sin, and its power that appeals to this built-in nature, this DNA that we have that wants to gain favor with God through law-keeping, through obedience. And so at the end of last week's sermon, we came to verse 12, and verse 12 tells us that the law is a good thing. The law is holy. The law is righteous. 
And then Paul says, did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? And he answers the question, no, it was sin. And so the problem we are facing is not a problem with the law. The problem is our own sin. That is the subject of verses 14 and following. And so let's jump in now and look at this dilemma of sin, this conflict with sin. First, we're gonna look at what appears to be a contradiction. Maybe you picked up on it, felt that conflict yourself as you heard the verses. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if you followed all of what Paul was saying there, it may sound like a contradiction. He's exposing us to this idea that he's not doing the thing that he wants to do. He wants to do good, but, but he finds himself doing the very thing that he hates. He even says that, that he's sold under sin. And that, that may sound like he's saying, I'm, I'm still in slavery. And that would be a contradiction to what we learn in chapter 6, where we learn in chapter 6 that we have been set free. In Jesus, we have been set free from sin, from its dominion over us, its power over us. And so when we come to these verses in chapter 7, we may be saying to ourselves, aha, there's a contradiction here. The Bible is contradicting itself. And so how do we resolve this? Because when we read these verses, you may walk away and say, this does not sound like a very successful Christian to me. This doesn't sound like the person I want to follow. Who is the Apostle Paul talking about here? This question, who is the, who is the subject in this passage has plagued people through generations. I mean, there's much ink that has been spilt over who is the person that Paul is talking about. And scholars has, have debated it for years. And I want to give you... In, two ways to think about this, two options, and I want to just kind of simplify all of the choices down to two. And I suggest to you that all of, of the variations that are out there are a subset of these two categories. And here are the two categories. Paul is either talking about himself as a believer, as, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, representing all of us, or he's talking about himself before he became a believer in Christ. He's talking about when he was not a believer. Now there's, like I mentioned, there are variations on this, other options to choose from that it boils down to deciding whether this is a believer or an unbeliever. And I wanna cut right to the chase and give you the thesis, the answer right away. This is the, Paul, the, the Apostle Paul talking about himself as a mature believer, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Christ. What he's describing is the Christian experience that we all face. He's describing what is normal. He's not descri describing what is unusual or what is extreme here. He's certainly not talking about an unbeliever. Now, let me unpack and tell you why I say this. I'm going to give you three reasons that the scripture 
gives us, why this is a believer in Jesus. First, this is a person who loves God's law and sees that it is good. In verse 16, he says, I agree with the law that it is good. And then in verse 22, he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Now, this, this is language of a believer. Unbelievers don't typically look at God's law and find that it is something good, nor do they delight in it. They may be begrudgingly follow God's law as something that they have to do, but they don't look upon God's law and say, it's good, it is something I delight in. Secondly, this is a person who hates his sin and desires to do what is right. In verse 15, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then in verse 18, for I have the desire to do what is right. Unbelievers don't typically look upon the sin in their lives and say they hate it. They don't look at the sin in their lives and acknowledge that this is rebellion against a holy God. If they hate their sin or don't like their sin, it's usually because it is causing some ill effect in their own life or some ill effect around them. But they don't look upon it and, and hate it. The last piece of evidence I'm going to give you, the very fact that this person struggles with sin is possibly a sign of faith. In verse 15, again, for I do not do what I want. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Throughout these verses, you see this struggle, this tension that the, the Apostle Paul is describing, that he, that he wants to do good, but he can't. He's wrestling with it. My daughter Hannah, when she was about the age of 16, uh, she was wrestling with questions of faith. She had all sorts of questions, wondering about her faith, wondering if it was good enough. And I used to tell her, just the sign that you have these questions, just the fact that you are asking them and wrestling with them, that, that, that it's keeping you up at night, it's a sign that God's spirit is at work in you. You see, the unbeliever doesn't wrestle with these questions. They don't wrestle with their own sin. They don't experience this war within that we, that we experience day after day after day. These verses are about the Apostle Paul himself, and it's representative of all of us here who are in Christ Jesus because a believer is someone who loves God's law, who hates sin, who desires to do what is right and who struggles with sin. That's what we see in these passages. And it turns out as you study this issue, the majority of theologians actually believe, yes, this is the Apostle Paul. This is the mature Apostle Paul talking about himself. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, they all believe this. And when you read the text itself, it's most natural to take it that way. You actually have to do some violence to the text to, to conceive of something else. And so what Paul here is doing, he's describing not a contradiction for us. He's describing a reality that, yes, indeed, we have been released from the dominion of sin, but we still have this indwelling sin that is influencing us. 
He's describing the fact that we are no longer dominated by sin, but yet at times we can be disabled by it. You know, when I started out in the game of golf, uh, if you are, you are a new golfer, you may have developed the same bad habit, and it's called a slice. And for a right-handed swinger, it's when you hit the ball and it zips off to the right, zips off to the right. I developed a bad slice. Well, through lessons and through all the things I did, I cured my slice. And now when I go out on the golf course, I'm not dominated by my slice anymore. But guess what? Every once in a while, and it always happens at the wrong time when there's a bunch of water on the right, you know. Um, I hit, hit the ball, and boom, I hit a slice. It goes into the water. I'm no longer dominated by that slice, but it still haunts me. It still crops up now and again. It's the same way with sin. We're no longer dominated by sin, but we can be disabled by it at times. That's the apparent contradiction that we're looking at in this conflict in these verses. And hopefully you'll see that this is not a conflict, but this is a reality for every one of us today. And so as we engage in this real struggle with sin, it helps us to have a clarity, a clarity about ourselves. I want us to look first at verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. See, this conflict that we face, this battle with indwelling sin, it is a real struggle with sin, but it's a struggle that has a benefit. And the benefit is that it brings us a clarity about ourselves. Paul here, when he's describing this, he is opposing this idea of the Christian life that is only happy and clappy, right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's, you may have been around other believers, and I have been in this state, by the way, so I'm not casting judgment, but it's this idea that, that the Christian life is only positive, that we have victory over sin, that the Christian life is this serene, peaceful, restful existence all of the time. It's this idea that the Christian life is simply, when I go through that valley and face hard times, I take a couple Bible verses, and everything's going to be good in the morning. It overemphasizes the positive. It doesn't steer deeply into the fact that we are at war. We are in a battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it is a real struggle. It is a battle that, yes, it is under the sovereignty of God, his love, his care, his protection, but at times, it could leave us bruised. It could leave us broken. It's an inability to hold the bad and the good together, to hold it in tension. I think it's wonderful that the scriptures present a realistic picture of our experience as believers, that the struggle is a real struggle. It shows us saints like King David. If King David were one of our leaders right now, we, we would not like him. No one would like him. We would throw him in jail. He, he's a deceiver. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. He, he abused his power and his position, and yet he is God's beloved grace poured out upon him. 
We have a scripture that shows us even, even the author of this passage, the, the Apostle Paul, would say of himself, I am the chief of sinners. We have a Bible that's realistic and shows us that, yes, even the greatest of saints are the worst of sinners, even us too. This is one of the subjective reasons when I read the scriptures and I see this, these things taking place, it actually comforts me. It gives me comfort to, to, to know it, it, it's true. Because no man could have, who, who wanted to construct a new religion would have put all that messiness in this book. It is a messy book. And we are messy people because we are sinners. And because we are sinners, we sin. In your bulletin, I've got a, a quote from Galatians chapter 5 describing this very battle with sin. It's a battle between the Spirit of God and indwelling sin, our very flesh. And it's a battle that we must engage in. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. The old man has been dealt a mortal blow. His total destruction is certain, but he is not yet dead. The conflict of the Christian life is a struggle with sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us if we are in Christ, yet sin is still in us. Regeneration liberates us from the bondage of original sin, but our corrupt nature is not totally annihilated this side of heaven. We live in the already, but not yet. The already, but not yet. This realistic view of our present conflict helps us to see ourselves clearly. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He's seeing himself clearly as God sees him, that nothing good dwells in him. He would say, wretched man that I am in verse 24. This is what Tim Keller means when he says, you are more sinful than you dared imagine. This is why the Apostle Paul could say in 1 Timothy 1, I am the chief of sinners. When we, when we struggle and battle with sin, we, we're gaining clarity, we're beginning to understand how sinful we really are, that our sin is profound, it is deep, and the rabbit hole of our sin is far more complex than we first imagined. When I was a, a, a young believer, you may identify with this. When I was reading first those Bible stories about Israel, I just remember thinking in my, my head, how stupid are these people, right? God just miraculously delivered them from Egypt. And then the next thing they know, they're worshiping what? A golden calf? And then they're wandering in the desert complaining at God. How, how sinful, how stupid are these people? And I failed to, to realize as a young Christian that I am just the same. I give my heart to worship dumb things instead of worshiping the one true God. And every time I complain and every time I sin, it is because of my unbelief. I fail to see myself in the pages of Scripture and when we struggle with sin, as we grow in the struggle with sin, we're beginning to get a taste and understand and see 
just how profound our sin is. There are two ways I want you to be encouraged as you go through this conflict with sin, as you gain this clarity. Two ways to be encouraged, two ways to grow. When we see ourselves as we truly are, broken sinners in need of a Savior, it allows us to give grace to other people. See, when we don't give grace to other people, we have this posture that somehow we are better than them, that we're above them, that they just need to get their act together. They, they, they need to be more like us. And as we battle sin and as we fail and as we struggle, we begin to see that we are not as great as we once thought we were. Giving grace to people means that we treat them the way Jesus has treated us. We receive them fully the way Jesus has fully received us with all of our warts, with all of our sin, rebellion. And we can receive people especially when they wrong us. Especially when we look at what they're doing and we say, well, that's just dumb. That's just stupid. They need to get their act together. We begin to see that we are no different than them. And in doing so, it allows us to have this very optimistic view towards people. It allows us to give them grace. John Newton says it this way, when people are right with God, they are apt to be hard on themselves and easy on other people. But when they are not right with God, they are easy on themselves and hard on other people. So which way is it for you this morning? You look at all the people around you and you're so hard and critical towards them, but you give yourself a pass every single time? Are you beginning to grow in the struggle with sin and, and realize, no, I'm far worse than I thought? And you begin to, to look upon yourself and are harder on yourself and you give grace to other people. That's what he is talking about here. Secondly, the second way I want you to be encouraged and seeing yourself clearly, truly as God sees you, is that it allows you to receive criticism from other people. Charles Spurgeon says this, Brother, if any man th thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. It's the truth, though. When someone wants to confront you or someone criticizes you, even if it's wrong, whatever allegation they could possibly have against you, guess what? Here's the reality. You are far worse than that. You're far worse. When you have this clarity about yourself, it, it allows you to open your hands and receive criticism. It allows you to hear other people. It allows you to be confronted knowing that whatever they're saying is is only just a fraction of how bad you are. We're on a real struggle with sin. And as we struggle with sin, our eyes become wider and wider open to who we are. We are gaining a clearer view of ourselves. And it's a benefit to us because God is sanctifying us in this battle with sin. I've given you two ways that you can grow in sanctification as you, as you get a clearer picture of who you are as you sin. Two ways. Give more grace. Receive criticism graciously. 
Lastly, let's look at our only comfort in verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And in these verses, actually here is a fourth reason when we look at this contradiction, this apparent contradiction, this is a fourth reason why I believe this is talking about a believer. This is Paul himself, because a believer knows that their only deliverance is in Jesus himself. Notice that our comfort and our hope is not found in a what, it's found in a who. Who will deliver me from this body of death? It's found in a person, not a new formula, not in a new method, not in a new experience that you're seeking to gain a spiritual high. It's not a new Bible reading plan, it's not a new book, it's not having more willpower. It's found in a person. Comfort and hope are found in Jesus as we go through this battle with sin. And our scriptures this morning are telling us that yes, one day, one day, the Lord Jesus will come back again and he will finally deliver us from this body of death. He will release us from this sin. We will have resurrected bodies and we will not be able to sin again. And so in the future, yes, there is future deliverance, but there is deliverance even today. There's comfort even today amidst our struggle with sin because Jesus gives us his spirit. That's what we're going to talk about as we go through five sermons in chapter 8. And it's a great source of comfort for us to know that the one who walks with us through our battle with sin has actually been there already. He is the God, he is the Savior who is tempted and tried in every way that we were yet without sin. In other words, he went through the battle and he won. You know, I talked about golf a lot th uh, this morning. You know, when I was golfing in my early days, I would struggle with that slice. And you know what would be a comfort and a help to me is to have someone who no longer struggles the way I do on the golf course, walking beside me step by step. Someone who has already conquered that slice. Someone who has conquered that hook. That's what we have in Jesus. That's the comfort we have in Jesus. He is walking with us through the struggle in life and he has already conquered everything that we face. If you're here this morning and you're reading these verses and you're pondering this scripture and you find that maybe this is describing where I am at today, that my journey of faith feels like I'm going more backward than forward, that I'm more failing than succeeding, this, this passage is for you to give you comfort. Your comfort and hope are in Jesus, because he has already conquered sin and death, and guess what? He is ascended. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is at the position of power, and what is he doing for us today? He is ever living to make intercession for us, to plead on our behalf, and to give us the power through his spirit to battle sin. Yes, Jesus is here. He is 100% 
on our sides in this battle. And so as we've gone through seven chapters of Romans, we learn, first of all, that we need Jesus, yes, at the very beginning of our Christian life, but we're finding out that we need Jesus every single day of our Christian life. We never graduate to the point where we don't need Jesus. Well, I've played golf for, what, 20, 25 years now, and I've never played a perfect game of golf. Always falling short of par. Here's the good news of the gospel. Here's the good news of the gospel. Just like right now, when I play golf, I'm still hitting some bad shots. The good news of the gospel is when God looks upon us in Jesus, he is not taking all of those bad shots of our sin and putting it on our scorecard. When he looks upon us in Jesus, what does he see? He sees the perfect scorecard of Jesus. And he is our comfort this morning. He is our strength. He is our encouragement in life and in death. Because as we go through this struggle of sin, we know Jesus has gone before us and he has already lived the perfect life. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father and mighty God, Lord, we confess that we are not as good as we think we are. Help us, Lord, to see the reality of remaining indwelling sin in our life, that yes, though Jesus has conquered sin, he will deliver us from sin, yet today, each of us still has to contend, has to battle with sin, and it can be discouraging. And so, Lord, we pray and we plead, give us more of Jesus. Give us more of Jesus to know that he walks with us through every trial, that he has gone there before us. He's won the victory, that he's conquered everything that we have ever faced. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen.